This is Dr. Ruth Ann Reese. She is professor of New Testament at Asbury Seminary, where both John and I attended. And she is a professor I was blessed to have multiple times. Would have taken a few more classes if I didn't need to go on and graduate. Um, but she has an incredible scholar's mind and an incredible pastoral heart. Being in her class was an experience of being part of community and being cared for and experiencing that the truth in Scripture really could live among us. And so I'm really excited for you to get to hear from her this morning because she's an incredible person and also because she comes to us as a scholar this morning. We're starting a new series on the book of 1 Peter, and Dr. Reese published a commentary on the book of 1 Peter last year. And so she has been dwelling in this book for quite a while. There is lots that has been ruminating under the surface for her, and we get to enjoy the fruit of that this morning. And so I hope that you see that as the privilege that it really is. And I just want to invite us to give her one more welcome as I turn over the mic. always a privilege to be with you here at Embrace. I w was able to come and visit with one of your Sunday school classes uh, a little while ago in the fall, I think, and so it's great to be with you here in your worship service. So I want to begin um, by reading for you from 1 Peter, and we'll read the opening section together. So we're going to read from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in abundance. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Even if now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that though perishable is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy, for you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that was to be yours made careful search and inquiry, inquiring about the person or time that the Spirit of Christ within them indicated when it testified in advance to the sufferings destined for Christ and the subsequent glory. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in regard to the things that have now been announced to you through those who brought you good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The word of God for the people of God. 
So it's always good to be back with my brothers and sisters here at Embrace. I'm grateful for your passion as a church to share Jesus with those who are around you. One of the encouragements that Peter gave to the believers in the book we are opening today were the words, even though you have not seen him, you love him. You see, Peter was one of those people who had seen the risen Lord Jesus. He saw him appear behind the locked doors when he was with other disciples who were hiding out because they were terrified for their lives. He saw him again when Thomas was with them. And he saw him yet again at a breakfast cookout on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. But this group of churches, like us, never physically saw the risen Jesus Despite never seeing the physical body of the risen Jesus, they believed, and they rejoiced with inexpressible joy. Like these early churches, we too are invited to share in the experience of loving Jesus, of trusting Jesus, and rejoicing because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So when I was invited to introduce you to the book of 1 Peter on the Sunday after Easter, I was really excited to say yes. You see, this book is about resurrection life. It's about hope in the midst of suffering and opposition. It was written to believers who were scattered across what is today modern-day Turkey. The people who made up these churches, they were not the elites of the cities and the states that this book was written to. No, these were people that Peter refers to as exiles. They were people who were living displaced lives far away from their homeland. They were, we could say, people without a home. And within these churches made up of these exiles or resident aliens, Peter chooses to address directly those whose lives are most difficult. He deliberately picks out slaves and women who are married to unbelieving husbands as the two groups that he will address by their category, by their status. These are two groups of faithful believers, these slaves and these women who are married to unbelievers, who will become models of what it looks like to live the resurrection life in the midst of suffering. And so this book, it's not a book written to all the best people and all the most fabulous people. It's the book written to the people who are far from home and who find themselves in difficult circumstances. But it's written with the hope of the resurrection at its core. Peter reminds them right away about who they are. They are people who have been chosen by God. Now, Peter, right, he's a good Jewish guy who grew up in a good Jewish family, and he loves the Old Testament. Remember, the Old Testament was Peter's Bible. And throughout this book, in 1 Peter, he will quote from and allude to the Old Testament over and over and over again. When Peter says to them, 
You are God's chosen people. You are called as God's chosen. He is alluding to that great covenant story from Exodus, where God delivered a people from the oppressive, enslaving power of Egypt and brought them to Sinai, where God bound himself in covenant to the people that he had delivered. This group of churches, they may be living in exile, they may be far from home, but they are part of God's chosen covenant people. The covenant that God made with Israel set them apart from the rest of the nations. So too, the church is set apart from the world around it. And we are set apart by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Now, sanctifying, that's one of those big churchy words, one of those words we find in the Bible or we find if you go off to seminary or something like that. It literally just means to be set apart, to be distinctive. But it means to be distinctive in the sense of being pure, being clean. And that's the work that the Holy Spirit does. Now, notice that. It's the work the Holy Spirit does. We don't do that work. We don't make ourselves clean. It's what the Holy Spirit does to set us apart, even as God set apart his chosen people at Sinai. Finally, in the Old Testament, covenants were ratified with blood. And this chosen people finds that it is, ra- it is confirmed in their identity as God's chosen people through the blood of Jesus. So from the very opening, we're only in verse 2 of the book. From the very opening of this book, we recognize that the death of Jesus has power to bring us into relationship with God. This covenant identity, the church as God's chosen people, set apart from the world by the power of the Spirit and confirmed by the blood of Jesus, outweighs any other identity that they might have. So the identity that the world wants to give them is the identity exile, the identity resident alien. The identity that the world wants to give them is slave. But this identity as God's chosen people outweighs all those other identities. And it doesn't matter what your status is in the eyes of the world or what roles you yourself or others might expect you to fill. Sometimes we expect ourselves to fill various roles. And sometimes other people place those expectations on us. But the most important thing is that you are a member of God's chosen covenant people. That is your ultimate identity. Now, when we hear these words, um, no, or I should say, notice that I didn't say that you are God's chosen. I said you are invited to be a member of God's covenant community. You see, when we hear the words you are chosen, we, um, in English, we have singular you in our head. Um, and we might hear something like, I am God's chosen one, and oh my, then we just start expanding, you know, swelling up with some pride. Um, but the whole of First Peter, and indeed most of the New Testament, is not addressed to individuals, but to communities. God is choosing the church. He is covenanting with the church. And all of us are invited to participate in this covenantal community. Now, there's a tension here, right? The tension of... Individually, we are invited to 
participate in this community, and we are invited to experience the work of the Holy Spirit making us clean, and we are invited to know the power of the blood of Jesus that makes that covenant possible, but we're invited into that together, all of us together. Now, the response in verse 3, the response to this good news is to bless God, to praise him and give thanks to him. Why? Because in verse 3, it tells us he has given us new birth. It's through this new birth that we become part of the family of God. So we have two kinds of pieces here, covenant identity and familial identity. And as members of that new family, God wants to give us three things. Three things. If you're taking notes, here they are. Living hope. I'm going to talk about each one of these. Living hope, an imperishable inheritance, and finally, salvation. Living hope. Peter is ex- explicit that our living hope comes about through Jesus' resurrection from the dead. It's the very fact of the resurrection of Jesus. That's what makes our hope living rather than wishful thinking. Hope is the emotion that allows us to set goals and think about the future. But hope has to be based in reality. And the reality is Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And when we have our hope based in that reality of who Jesus is, that allows us to live lives that have purpose and direction and that anticipate a future that we will find ultimately in the presence of God. Secondly, an imperishable inheritance. Now, the reality is that not every family has the means to pass on a monetary inheritance to their children. And the other reality is that even those families that do have the means to pass on a monetary inheritance to their children have no way of guaranteeing the value of that inheritance in the future. We all know that stock portfolios are fickle and that the spending power of cash decreases. We know these things. But what we are promised and offered as members of God's family is an imperishable inheritance. Not only that, it's inheritance that's kept in the presence of God. What I like to say to students, this is the best banking system. It's the safest place that one can keep that inheritance. We never have to worry that the inheritance will disappear or become unavailable or depreciate in value. But what is this inheritance that we're looking forward to? Well, first of all, I have to say, Peter doesn't spell it out. We could wish a little bit more uh, detail from the apostle. But I want to suggest that it is a portion in the kingdom of God. And that what we are invited to is this kind of anticipation that we will be with God and that we will have a place, a portion, a segment of the kingdom that is our inheritance. Third, the third gift that's given to those in God's family is salvation. Peter describes this salvation as something that's ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, here's the thing. His audience is already 
part of the covenant community. They have already experienced new birth. In other words, they have already experienced salvation. But their lives, their lives still need more. They still need final completion, right? We all know the suffering, the pain, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that make our lives long for that perfect completion in Christ. And what he says is that this is a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last day. When is that last day? When Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, will return and be revealed in that last day. And what will happen then? He will set everything right in this world. Remember, you are part of God's chosen people, born into a new family, and given these gifts of hope, inheritance, and at the end of time, the full experience of salvation. Now, this all sounds great, and I've heard a few souls out there saying amen, and I appreciate every one of you. Who doesn't want to be a part of this? Indeed, in verse 6, it is this very set of truths that we are invited to rejoice in. But Peter goes right on in verse 6. And the very next thing he talks about is sorrow and suffering. I've thought it's interesting in our worship how already we've been mixing these two things, sorrow and suffering and rejoicing, together in one worship service, one experience of God's presence. You see, these churches that were scattered across modern-day Turkey, they knew what it was like to experience a variety of trials, and they knew about the grief and suffering that comes along with those trials. Peter wasn't only talking about the normal trials of everyday life. This was a church that experienced suffering from their neighbors, people who mocked them because of their righteousness, because of their good deeds, people who took advantage of their integrity, and people who may have used the political system to harass followers of Jesus. For Peter, who had suffered for his own faith in Jesus, this was really no surprise. But he encourages this scattered group of people by reminding them that in the end, the testing of their faith is part of how their faith is refined. And in the end, those whose faith is shown to be genuine will experience praise and honor and glory at the last day when the living, resurrected Jesus is revealed. The Christian faith can be an experience of mixed emotions. On the one hand, we are God's people, experiencing new life by God's mercy and receiving the gifts that come through belonging to that new family. We have every reason to rejoice in the reality of what God has given and the reality of who God has made us to be. At the same time, to the world, we look strange because of our faith, or at least we should. And that very difference can lead to rejection and pain and suffering. And as human beings, that causes sorrow, mixed emotions, 
rejoicing and sorrow at the very same time. And as if that's not enough, we are living with anticipation. It's another emotion. Right? First of all, I have to say, when you're looking through 1 Peter in this upcoming series, 1 Peter has a lot about emotion, hope and fear and sorrow and anticipation. These are, they're all there in the book. So keep your eyes out for the way that Peter uses emotion, because lots of times we don't talk about how the emotion comes across in the biblical text, but it's there, and I want you to be looking for it. So that other, along with rejoicing and sorrow, there's this other emotion of anticipation, like, oh, Lord, when are you going to make this all right? right? That emotion is also there, part of our reality that we experience. So Peter begins, all 3, 1 through 12, he begins by naming our identity as God's chosen covenant people and by reminding us that we belong to a new family. He begins by reminding us that our association with the good news brings about both rejoicing and sorrow. And he begins by reminding us that the salvation we have received is a great gift that even the angels in heaven wish they could look into. This great reality of God's salvation, notice that it's God's salvation. It's always what God is doing, is the foundation from which the rest of the book unfolds. Now, I want to take a big liberty with the, the last part of this sermon. And basically, I want to leap right ahead into the middle of the book to chapter 3, um, verses 18 to 22. And I want to do this for two reasons. Um, first of all, you're going to find out as you read and study that Peter, this is one of the things I love about his book, it is intertwined with instruction, like imperative, do this, do this, do this, do this, and then theology, and this is the reason. And then do this, and this is the reason, and do this, and this is the reason. That's the pattern in, in Peter's book. It's different than if you're reading Paul. Paul likes to say theology, th no, he likes to say, yeah, theology, 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 and then do this. That's, that's Paul. But Peter's much more intertwined with his instructions and his theology. So you guys are going to get to see all of that as you read and study and think about this. But on this second Sunday in Easter, I want to leap ahead to chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. First, I'm leaping ahead to this sec section because it provides a wonderful narrative that fits perfectly into this Easter season. And second, it highlights the deep theology of 1 Peter. So just to set the context, Peter has just instructed them to be ready to speak to others about their faith. And he's reminded them that they may experience suffering for speaking about their faith and for doing good. In this context, once again, a context that points towards suffering, pain, and sorrow. This is what we read. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. Now the parts of the passage that I want to focus on are those that have to do with Jesus Christ. If we follow this carefully, we see that Jesus suffered for sins. Peter is unusual in highlighting Jesus' suffering on the cross 
rather than his death on the cross. One of the reasons for this is that Peter wants to show Christians that the one they follow and belong to also suffered. Jesus' suffering on the cross makes possible our relationship with God. Our own suffering has the potential to be a refining fire that draws us closer to God. The suffering of Jesus and our own suffering both have the potential to bring us into deeper relationship with God. Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. These two phrases refer to Jesus' death, followed by his resurrection. Now I'm going to skip over the next two verses. They're actually very difficult. Um, and if you want to talk to me about them after church, you can. But I'm going to skip over that to verse 21. Baptism now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is not baptism alone that saves you. Baptism without the resurrection of Jesus is nothing. The resurrection itself is the means of salvation, right? Baptism now saves you through the resurrection. Sometimes we focus on the crucifixion, on the death of Jesus as the locus of salvation. So we hear something like, Jesus died for my sins. And that is true, but it's not enough. We need the resurrection also. It isn't enough for someone to die. In fact, anyone can do that. And indeed, sometimes a person can be saved through the death of another person. Some heroic act that someone performs that saves the life of another person in which they spend their own life. But it is the resurrection that makes Jesus' death unique and demonstrates that he not only died, but that he conquered death and did away with sin. This is what empowers us for the covenantal and familial life rooted in resurrection hope. And what we find is that this resurrected Christ has ascended into heaven, and there he reigns with God. It is both the death and resurrection of Jesus that makes fully possible our participation in God's covenant and in God's family. Our capacity to live as faithful members of the covenant community is rooted in Jesus' faithfulness in suffering and his triumph in resurrection. Our ability to live as people who belong to a holy family is embedded in acknowledging that trials and suffering happens and that sorrow and grief are real and appropriate emotions within the family of God. While at the same time, here's the thing, while at the same time, holding on to the joy that is ours because we know the power of the resurrection to overcome death and destruction and despair. Our willingness to live lives that testify, testify by their very actions to the good gifts of God is foolishness unless the death and resurrection of Jesus really do away with sin and really empower new life among believers. So as we go out today, may we take with us a recognition that our true identity, the identity given to all of us gathered together in the church by God, is the identity of his covenant people, chosen, set apart, ratified with the blood of Jesus. May we go out knowing that whatever status society might want to pigeonhole us with, our true identity is you are a member of the family of God 
And as we go out, may we go out knowing that we may experience joy and sorrow, hope and grief, trials and suffering, but we experience those as people who have been called into relationship with God and with one another through the reality of Jesus' suffering, his death, and his resurrection. Amen.